theyeshiva.net. I really want to thank everybody for joining us here this very special evening. I want to thank my dear friends, Fagi and Chesky, the parents of Sari of Blessed Memory, who have year in, year out, always made a special attempt to honor her special memory, her unique soul, the extraordinary life that she lived, the energy that this young girl exuded through her short but impactful and powerful life. Tonight's shir, tonight's lecture get-together is of course dedicated in her loving memory, Hanasara Bas Meshulam Yecheskel, in tribute of the eighth yard site. Many of you <coughs> know the story of this remarkable girl who, as her mother shared with me not long ago, was diagnosed at the age of 10 with cancer and then battled for two and a half years and passed away eight years ago at the age of 12 and a half. I want to quote the words of her mother. May you have many happy and healthy years together with all of your loved ones and your husband, of course. She wrote to me about her daughter. And nobody knows a daughter like a mother. My daughter was a person who grew from her serious challenge, her Nisoyen. She taught all of us the true meaning of Simchas HaChayim what it means to live a life of joy and of meaning. She wrote to me about the 250 people who have undertaken upon themselves to learn the book, A A Life Worth Living, in her memory. Every year there have been over 200 people learning a book in her honor and in honor of the yard site. And I want to welcome all those who learned the book of this year, A Life Worth Living. I know not all of you are joining us for whatever reason, but all of you who are joining us or all of you who will watch it later, I want to thank you and welcome all of you to this class. I just recall when I saw the title of the book, A Life Worth Living, it just reminded me of an old story I once heard, and it touched me that there was once a devastating fire that broke out in a home and there was a man there who was disabled. He was physically crippled. He couldn't run out. So a fireman rushed into the raging flames and he schlepped out this man to safety. And this person who was physically disabled but financially very well-to-do turned to the fireman who just rescued him from the flames and he said, I would like to reward you handsomely. I am a man of means. Tell me the price that I owe you and I'll give it to you. And the fireman innocently said, I was just doing my job. You don't have to pay me. I get my salary. I'm comfortable. And the man says, don't be foolish. I am a very wealthy man and I'm offering you here. A great reward for saving my life. Take it. 
And the man says again, I didn't do it for money, I'm doing my job, enjoy your money. He says, but I would like to reward you. So the fireman says, so then I will ask you for one favor. Live a life that was worth saving. Live a life that is worth living. Before we go to sleep at night, it's one of the questions we can ask ourselves. Did I live a day that was worth saving, worth remembering? May have not been a perfect day, but I gave it all my got, I got. It was a day in which I displayed courage, love, resilience, faith, fortitude. A day in which I challenged myself and flexed my spiritual, emotional, psychological, and hopefully physical muscles. A day in which, as my Rebbe would say, I left the world a little better than it was when I came in. And that I always found to be a very meaningful question. I want to make sure that this day leaves the world a little better than the way it was when I entered into the day. And this special soul, whose loving memory we commemorate tonight, Hanasara, certainly in her 12 and a half years, her short journey on earth, left the world not just a better place, a happier place, a deeper place, a more authentic place, place of deeper oneness, intimacy, deeper love and unity. Every neshama, every soul has its journey and its mission, which is unique. Every soul is an indispensable note in the divine cosmic symphony. And every soul fulfills its unique shlichut, its unique purpose, and exudes a light into the world and into history and into God Himself and into all of the Jewish people that never was brought into the world, not before the soul and not after the soul. And certainly your daughter, Mark and Fagi, Cheski and Fagi, your daughter, sorry, brought a tremendous light into the world. And the best proof is that years later, quite a few years later, so many people gather year in and year out. And once again this year, even with our physical distance but spiritual unity, in order to celebrate her life, to remember her life, to pay tribute to her life, and most importantly, to carry on her joy, her growth, her commitment, her faith, her simcha sachayim, in our own lives and in your lives and in your family lives. And in that sense, her spirit lives her energy lives, her soul, her holy soul, continues to impact us. And may she be an everlasting source of love and joy and inspiration, not only to the dear parents, not only to the entire mishpach of the family, not only to the entire community, to all of Tinek, but really to all of us, because we're all connected in a very, very profound way. I once remarked, it could be it was at an event at Tinek, actually, a Yartzet event at Tinek, I'm not sure, that I once saw a very moving letter. Arik Sharon, Ariel Sharon, Oliver Shalom, you remember was the one of the heroes of the Six-Day War, celebrated Israeli general. Years later he would go into politics, not sure if it was the best thing for him, but he was a military genius and a military general par excellence. And... He was one of the heroes who led the Jews, the soldiers, 
to victory in the Six-Day War. It was an incredible, an incredible moment. It's before my days, but I'm sure some of you remember, even though everybody looks so young here, but certainly some of you remember the Six-Day War. And shortly afterwards, tragedy struck. Ariel Sharon, Arik was married to Lili. His first wife was Lili Sharon. And they had a nine-year-old boy who one night went and took one of his father's guns and was playing with it. And by mistake, he shot himself. It was a fatal wound and he died. In the home, in the yard, nine years old, shortly after the Six-Day War. It was an unfathomable tragedy. Any family, under any circumstances, but the contrast was so tragic. Here his father was celebrated in Israel and the world after the Six-Day War as the man who led his people to victory, and then this personal devastating loss. And I once saw a letter that was penned by the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory, Tariel Sharon, shortly afterwards. Very long letter. He starts over the letter, I don't know you personally, but I felt that I want to write to you. Later they would get to know each other quite well. They would become pretty close acquaintances. He came to visit a lot here in New York, I remember. But at 68, 67, they haven't met yet, uh, face to face. So he says, but I want to share this with you. And it was a long letter where he shared just words of solace and comfort and more than words, silence. But then he wrote to Sharon, Arik Sharon, a thought. And he said that by Jews, when we comfort somebody, the traditional statement is, May God comfort you among the mourners of Zion and Yerushalayim, Zion and Jerusalem. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe asked the question to Mr. Sharon, why are we associating it with Zion and Jerusalem? person comes, God forbid, to a shiva call. Say, may God comfort you for your loss among those who are mourning for Zion and Yerushalayim. What's the connection? We're speaking here about a specific loss in this particular family. So speak about that. And he wrote to Mr. Sharon, he said, there are three reasons to make this association. First is, we want to emphasize whose loss it is. Sometimes we think a person lost a family member. It's an individual loss. It's sad. But it's their, it's their loss. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. So we say, no, it's like Zion and Jerusalem. Who mourns for Zion? Who mourns for Yerushalayim? Every Jew has a heart. Every Jew who's connected, and every Jew is connected, consciously or subconsciously, mourns for Zion and Jerusalem. So we say the loss of every single Jew, any person, child, an older person, woman or man, at any age, affects all of Klal Yisrael, because it's like a limb of a body. Every soul is essential to the fabric, to the chemistry, to the living organism called Am Yisrael. So therefore, it's not just, you know, they amputated my leg, my arm, big deal. (laughs) Big deal. Changes the trajectory of your life forever. Number one, it's not an individual loss. It's part of the Jewish people. Some people may feel it more acutely than others. 
But we're all part of it. And therefore I say, we're all part of the commemoration of this yard site. Then he said number two. The loss of Tzion and Yerushalayim, everybody knows, was only physical. Jerusalem's spirit did not die, nor did the Beis HaMikdash cease to exist. It continues to exist in the hearts and souls of every single Jew. Even when there were very few Jews living in Jerusalem, and physically there was no temple and no community, wherever they were in the world, facing Jerusalem, remembering the Beis HaMikdash, hoping for the Geula, for the redemption, the presence of the Shekhinah dwelled and dwells in every heart and in every shul and in every home and wherever you let God in, in the whole world. Physically it was decimated, but not spiritually. And he said, so we tell every person who is mourning, God will comfort you among the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem in the sense that just as that destruction was only physical, but never spiritual, never ever think that a soul can die. A soul lives forever. A soul lives in eternity, even if it lives in dimensions that are not graspable by the five senses of the material body. And then he said, number three, we know that Sion and Yerushalayim will be rebuilt. We pray many times a day, Jerusalem will be rebuilt, Beis will be rebuilt, Geula will come, and so we tell every person, this is like the comfort of Sion and Yerushalayim, where one day, the neshama will calm down with the tchias amesim, the resurrection, and be reunited with its loved ones. And this letter really triggered a very powerful relationship that wasn't just nice, it was good for the Jews in terms of the security of Israel and in terms of vision for the Jews living in Israel, the country, the soldiers, and all of our brothers and sisters living in Israel. Today, thank God, numbering 6.6 6.6 million. So when I asked Fagi, what do you want me to talk about besides, you know, a tribute to your daughter? She said, I want you to talk about loving Jews. <laughs> so I like that. That's always the best topic. The best topic is talking about love. That's what we need. That's what we want. That's what the Jewish people yearn for. And that's the truth. All our problems, many of our problems, come from fragmentation, from disunity. And when do that, but it's so easy. Alienation, especially now is an era of a lot of distancing, social distancing and physical distancing. And also people having different, different opinions and different perspectives. People living in different worlds and different philosophies. Some who take this pandemic very seriously. And some on the other extreme and some in the middle. And without now judging anybody or criticizing anybody or anything, there's often this unity and mistrust and fragmentation, sometimes between families. We live in a country that is now very divided, as the recent elections have demonstrated. We live in a world that is gripped by fear, by uncertainty, by challenges, by insecurity, and by anxiety. And it's most fitting to use the yard site of a young girl like Sari. Zichrona Levracha of blessed memory to inspire ourselves and empower ourselves how we, individuals and collectively, every person in their own life and in their home and family, every community beginning with Tinek, but all Jewish communities, and I know people are tuning in here from Tinek and tuning in here from other parts of New Jersey and other parts of the United States of America, 
including my little shtetle here in Rockland County, a few minutes away, wherever you're tuning in from, we can all strengthen ourselves in Avas Yisrael, the love of Jews, and in Achdus Yisrael, the unity of Jews. It's really, I would say, the call of the hour. And let's be blunt about it. Not a very long ago, many of you remember, a rabbi can gain popularity by getting up in the synagogue and giving a speech, fire and brimstone, against a particular individual or a community. You can almost become popular that way. It meant you have a spine, you have a position, etc. Today, I would say it's one of the unique blessings of our times. I find in the last decade, maybe two decades, that this is not the case anymore. People, most people, and I've had the privilege of going around the world and speaking to, I think, every conceivable type of Jewish community. What you would call Litvish and Yeshivish and Hasidish and very Hasidish and Satmer. What you would call modern, modern Orthodox, uh, very ultra-fundamentalist, this type of Hasidim, non-Hasidim, whatever. The labels here are pretty irrelevant. And I find a true yearning for unity. The Jewish people don't want to live anymore with a tunnel vision where I can only have a narrow view of reality and of the people. People are really yearning to appreciate the rainbow called Klal Yisrael, Knesset Yisrael. A rainbow in which there is space for every Jewish soul. A rainbow in which there is less judgmentalism and more empathy. A chuppah, a canopy that is inclusive and encompassing. People are literally sick and tired of fragmentation, of divisiveness, of misunderstanding, of hatred, of animosity, of negativity. It doesn't sell. And the reason it doesn't sell, it doesn't speak to people's soul, especially the youth. It's interesting. Post-Holocaust, there were so few that everybody had to stick together to survive. Then God blessed us all with success and every community started to blossom. And you know what happened? A certain division happened because everybody now could be self-contained. You don't like this community, you make your own newspaper. You remember, they started to make their own newspapers, their own magazines. And you only read the magazines that work with your tribe and everybody is content, but it makes us all smaller, narrower, more impoverished. It doesn't help anybody in the long term because we're all part of a living organism. And if you don't believe me, ask the anti-Semites, you'll see. They couldn't kill us. They can't. They don't differentiate between the two. And therefore, we live today in a time, I feel so strongly that people, when you talk about love and unity in a genuine and deep and authentic way, it's literally like the verse says, It's like a cold cup of water when you have been stranded in the wilderness, in the scorching heat of the sun. Like an isle who pines at afike moyim, at flash floods, flash floods of water. An ayal is this, one of those mountain goats that is thirsty and it's looking to hydrate itself and it finds afike moyim, flash floods of water. What a beautiful posik in Tehillim. So my soul yearns for truth, for God. And I would say today, I find souls yearning for, for unity. Unities within families, within communities, especially within Israel and among the Jewish people. And blessed are all those who speak about this nonstop because we need healing. There have been a lot of rift and a lot of misunderstanding.
And as I always tell my guys, my students, my constituents, we don't have to agree with each other. God forbid we're Jews. But we have to be here for each other. We don't have to share the same opinions about everything. But we have to trust each other. We have to be able to lean on each other, rely on each other, support each other. We have to continue speaking to each other. I once heard from the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who just passed away literally one month ago, on the 20th of Cheshven. Rabbi Sachs said, the Torah opens up Vayeshev to describe the conflict between Yosef, Joseph and his brothers, they stopped communicating. He says, even when we disagree, we have to continue to talk and we have to each other and we have to continue to listen to each other. It's very easy to cut you off. I don't speak to you any longer. 20 years later, we're not on speaking terms. How can brothers not be on speaking terms? How can sisters not be on speaking terms? How can our conscience justify this? Imagine you would tell Sarah, the girl whose life we're commemorating today, I don't speak to my sister. We have a fight over my father's inheritance. Or I don't speak to my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, because of a fight at the chuppah, the Sheva Brachas. She would look at you and saying, life is short and precious. You're going to allow petty, egotistical arguments to split up a family, to split up a community. Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, maybe you're both right, maybe you're both wrong, maybe you're 50% right, maybe you're 90% right. But you have to be able to see a, have a bird's eye view of life and see the larger picture. And don't sacrifice long-term happiness for short-term victory. Last week, just heard a story from the former chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Israel Meir Lau, Rabbi Israel Meir Lau Shlita, who's an exceptional man, I love him. He was a survivor of Buchenwald at the age of eight. Lost his father and mother. They were murdered. His father was gassed in Treblinka. His father was Reb Moshe Chaim Lau, the rabbi of Pietrikov in Poland, cousin of Reb Meir Shapiro from Lublin, Dafyomi. And Reb Moshe Chaim Lau was murdered. He was gassed. His wife was murdered. Other children were murdered. Naftali Lavi, the older brother of Yisrael Meir, they called him Tulek, Tulek. And his younger brother was Luluk. And in a sack, he hit him in a sack and he got him into Buchenwald. Because they wouldn't allow kids there. They'd be killed right away. He's one of the youngest Holocaust survivors. He came up to Israel without anybody. He had an older brother. No father, no mother. Other siblings murdered. But he had an uncle who lived in Kiryat Motzkin in Israel. And he was taken to his uncle's home and his uncle and aunt raised him. Last week, Rabbi Lau was talking to a class, a bar mitzvah class in Israel, via Zoom, of course, via Zoom. Usually, the bar mitzvah class wouldn't get Rabbi Lau to come down to give a speech. He's one of the great orators of the Jewish world, but it's one of the advantages of Zoom. And on Zoom, you sit in your office or in your home, and you speak. One hour you speak to Melbourne, and the next hour you speak to Moscow, and the next hour you speak to New York and Los Angeles, and then you go to Teaneck. So Rabbi Lau was giving an address to this Zoom bar mitzvah class. And he shared with them an experience. He said, I want to tell you about my bar mitzvah. My bar mitzvah was Shabbos, Parshas, Shlach. And I feel it's an appropriate story tonight, especially because Sari passed away right after her bat mitzvah at 12, shortly after. So I think it's a very appropriate story. And Rabbi Lau said, 
I was an orphan, so it was an exciting milestone for me. Finally, you know, some some action in my life. I'll have a bar mitzvah. And I prepared for months the portion of the week to read the Torah, Parsha Shlach. Now people felt bad, they heard about the orphans bar mitzvah. So people came from all over the country to celebrate my bar mitzvah in Kiryat Matzkin. The shul was finally packed. You know, people here, there's an orphan. Remember, there were orphans, but most kids were exterminated. So when there was a child who survived without a father and mother, people felt a lot of empathy. So a lot of people who wouldn't have come, come but they came to honor Yisrael Mayor Lulik for his bar mitzvah. So the shul was packed. I was so excited. I'm going to give my first performance. And remember, this is a person who has given many performances over the years. But this is the first as a bar mitzvah boy. He says, I go up to the bim. This shul had a regular weekly balkaire. Somebody would read the Torah, his name was Moshe. Moshe was an old man. He had a white beard, a short white beard. And Rabbi Lau says his vitality came from reading the Torah in the shul. He loved the attention and the validation and the being in the center of things and reading the Torah. He would prepare for it all week. He took it so seriously. This was like his, his, his oxygen for the week. This was it. You know, everybody has their, their thing. He says, I come up. I come up from one side of the bimah. Now, usually what would happen is, when there was a bar mitzvah, so the gabai would tell Moshe in the beginning of the week that don't prepare because there's going to be a bar mitzvah boy. Rabbi Lau says, I come up to the bimah to read the Torah. And who comes up from the other side? Good old Moshe. And we meet, we meet right there. And the Torah is coming up, and the Gabbai turns to Moshe, says, Moshe, this week you're not reading, there's a bar mitzvah. Moshe tells the Gabbai, Lo amruli, nobody told me. So what does the Gabbai say? I'm telling you now, <laughs> leave. Moshe says, it's not fear. I prepared already, you didn't tell me. Gabbai says, it's about mitzvah boy, I'm telling you now, go down. Moshe says, this is so unfair. I do this voluntarily, I don't get paid for this. I give my soul and heart for this. I prepare every week for free. And I prepare this week. How can you take this away from me? The Gabbai says, it's about mitzvah boy, get out of here. And Rabbi Lau says, I see Moshe, he's almost crying. He says, finally the shul is full. Usually the shul is empty. Finally the shul is full. Everybody came. And you're going to take away this opportunity from me? You're going to take away from me the ability to read the Torah to everybody? And the Gabbai at this point was quite frustrated, you can imagine, or infuriated. Here's a bar mitzvah boy, an orphan from the Holocaust. Here's an older man who's reading every week, and he doesn't want to give up his job. So the Gabbai really, you know, wanted to just throw him out. Rabbi Lau tells the boys, he says, let me tell you what happened. I said, I will take care of it. I went over to Moshe. And I saw that Moshe was almost weeping because for him, this was just his, it was his oxygen. It was just, it was so important to And I said, Moshe, I see how much this matters to you. I'm 13 years old. I am sure I will have many, many opportunities to speak in public and to read the Torah in public. 
but you're an elderly man. You're much, much older than I am. I feel the right thing is to give it to you. I see how valuable it is for you. Here, you read the Torah with pleasure. And Rabbi Lau went down from the Bima, and this old man, Moshe, read the Bar Mitzvah Parsha instead of Yisrael Meir Lau. And Rabbi Lau turned to the boys and he said, this was the first mitzvah that I did for my Bar Mitzvah. A Bar Mitzvah is a time to do mitzvahs. This was my first mitzvah. Giving this Jew the oxygen, the attention he needed. And he smiles and he says, and let me tell you something. It was true, I have had many, many opportunities since then to speak in public and to read the Torah and teach the Torah in public. He says, children, when you don't allow small conflicts to take over your life, you don't become petty, you look at the bigger picture, you don't sweat the small stuff, and you allow a person their dignity, your mavata, you forgo what may be so critical at this moment and you realize there's another perspective for this person that means the world you let it go and you don't harbor grudges he says you will never lose when you're giving something up at the moment to help save somebody's dignity you're not really giving anything up you will gain so much more it was such a powerful story for 13 year olds who were complaining that they can't have a big, festive, beautiful bar mitzvah like they were planning to. In Corona, they're quarantined. But I think it's a powerful message for each and every one of us. You know, it's so easy to get engulfed and entangled in arguments with your spouse, your husband or your wife. What are we doing for Hanukkah? What are we not doing for Hanukkah? We're going here, we're not going there. Arguments about finance, arguments about education, arguments about relationships, arguments about the home, arguments about Donald J. Trump, arguments about Joe Biden, arguments about what lives matter, arguments about everything. Psychological, emotional, spiritual, practical stuff. It's so easy to get into that zone of mistrust and fragmentation. But to be a Jew is really to always have that mindfulness of Ihine Hashem Nitzavalov. That I am always in a relationship with God who's infinite. And the reason I'm always in a relationship with God is because I am a piece of God. In other words, I'm also infinite. And when you're infinite, make a decision from a place of infinity. And your decisions from a place of infinity will never be small and petty and ridiculous and egotistical and filled with toxicity and insecurity and misery and mistrust. Because you will be able to make decisions from a place of infinite confidence, empowerment, vigor, strength, animation, fortitude, resilience, wisdom, depth. When you're in touch with your true self, at least on some level, you could say goodbye to the need of being superficial and the need of getting the last word. I can transcend my impulses I can transcend my reptilian brain to be able to be more conscientious, more focused on the goal, more unifying, and not only thinking about what will feel good at this present moment to release my anger and develop survival skills, but what will really bring me closer to my truest inner core, to my truest and deepest 
and most powerful values. And that makes, literally, all the difference. You know, my dearest friends, it's so true individually, and it's also true collectively. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the California Redwoods. They're called the Redwoods, California Redwood. Unique trees, they're known as the sequoias, the sequoia tree. Some of them have been around for more than 3,000 years. There are trees that their lifespan is close to 3,500 years. That means they date back to the days of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They've been around before Moses was born in Egypt. They've been around 3,000 years before George Washington and 1,000 years before Alexander the Great. These trees are incredible. They have endured every storm, weathered every storm, tsunami, and hurricane in the world. Floods and fires. Actually, recently they discovered that the forest fires are actually good for the sequoias. They help the sequoias, but it's not for tonight's lecture. Unbelievable. You know, the California forest fires, the redwoods, it's helpful for them. Interesting. Some of these trees, I think the tallest tree can reach the height of 350 feet in height and in diameter, 56 feet. Scientists, botanists wanted to understand the secret of these trees. How did they endure for thousands of years? How did they manage to survive every possible storm? I mean, they didn't start off so tall and so powerful. They started off as saplings. Three and a half thousand, who's been around for three and a half thousand years? Imagine you're standing in front of a tree, and this tree was there before Moshe Rabbeinu, <laughs> before Yahushua, before Matan Torah, before Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, before Golos Mitzrayim, or in the beginning of Golos Mitzrayim. It's like crazy. You know, the Medrash says that Yaakov brought cedar trees down with him from Eretz Yisrael to Egypt, and he planted them. He told his children, when you go out of Egypt, you'll take these cedars, and that's how they had the wood to build a, a mishkan. And this gave them comfort. That's Rabbi Tanchuma's teaching. Right? So they looked at these trees that Yaakov planted. And generations later, but not so long, they were in Egypt for 210 years. Here you're looking at trees, and you're seeing trees that theoretically could have seen the face of Yaakov Avinu and Yosef Atzadik, the face of Reuven, Shimon, Levi, and Yehuda, the faces of Binyamin and Yisachar. It's like, and they're here, they're physical. They're physical trees that you can touch. It's fascinating. So scientists want to understand what is the secret of their resilience and endurance. They imagined that the roots of these trees must extend maybe hundreds of feet in the earth, and they're so deeply embedded in the earth that, as the Mishnah says in Perkei when you have deep roots, then no wind, no storm can destroy you. How shocked they were when they discovered that the roots of most of the sequoias are shallow. Some of those roots don't extend deeper than five or six feet into the ground, which was astounding to botanists. How can it be that a tree whose roots only go down five feet can grow so tall, 350 feet, so wide, and can last so long? And then they discovered the secret, my dear friends. Open your hearts. 
what these trees don't have in depth, they make up in width. You see, the roots of these California redwoods, these sequoia trees, extend in width. Very, very far from the trunk, from the center of the tree. Sometimes they can extend in the width 100 feet or close to 100 feet or more than 100 feet. And you know what happens in the process? Something unbelievable. The roots of the, each sequoia meets up underground with the roots of another sequoia. And they become interlocked with each other. So above the surface, you can have many distinct trees. Below the surface, they're all one. Their roots become fused, interconnected, integrated, interwoven, interlocked. No storm has a chance. The storm is not fell, trying to fell one tree. The storm has to attack 50 trees. It has no chance. All their roots have become fused into one because they spread out so wide and they literally become one. And when I read that, I'm like, that's the answer to Mark Twain's question. When Mark Twain wrote his famous article in Harper, the late 1800s, why the Jews? How is it that all of the great empires of history have come and cast their light and glow upon the face of this earth, but ultimately they vanished and have been reduced to the dustbins of history. And there is one minority that has been, that it's been hunted down and persecuted in every single age by every single empire. And nonetheless, it's still around and vibrant and alive and well. It's survived and it thrives. And especially, we could say, during this time of Hanukkah, the awareness of this becomes so powerful. Because if you ask a question, where is the Greek Empire? Where is the Syrian Empire of Antiochus? Where is the Roman Empire? Where is the Egyptian Empire? Where is the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire? Where is Rome? Where is Vespasian? Where is Antiochus? Where is Alexander? Where is Paul? Where is Caliglia, Vespasian, Titus, Adrian, Tiberius? Where are they? Where is Turkmenistan? Where is Khmelnytsky? Where is Alfred Rosenberg? Joseph Mengele? Joseph Goebbels? Where is Joseph Stalin? Where is Salamani? And where is Bin Laden? And the answer is, they're all in the same place where Pharaoh is. In Wikipedia. They're all in Wikipedia. And now one more question. We are the Jewish people. And the answer is, we created Wikipedia. And Google. And Facebook. And Instagram. And Telegram. Somebody asked me, why do we eat, why do we eat latkes on Hanukkah? Why? What do we, anybody knows? I know the answer they taught you in Tinek. Because oil, right? Because we love oil. Hanukkah is oil, oil, the oil burnt. For eight days. So we eat latkes and donuts for eight days. Submerged in oil. But I'll give you my own answer. My own pshetl. <laughs> the reason is because the Greeks were into a few things. They were into sports. 
They were into athletics. They were into the physical physique of their body. They were into looks. This is what they were into. So therefore, we eat as many donuts and latkes and Hanukkah because Hanukkah represents the victory of the Jews against the Greeks and we want to make sure we will never ever look like them. But we don't only defeat our enemies. That's not what we do. We also turn our enemies into food. We take Pharaoh and we turn him into a matzah ball. We take Haman and we turn him into a hamantash. We take Antiochus and we turn him into a latke. We don't only want to defeat our enemies and write their obituaries. We want our enemies to add to our cholesterol and our fat, matzah ball, latkes, hamantash, and we will take them and eat them. So Mark Twain says, how did this happen? How did this happen? And the answer is two ingredients. Our latkes have two ingredients. One is the Torah, and the second is the fusion. We are the sequoia trees of history. We are the redwoods of history. We have been around. How? Look at those trees. On the surface, they're separate. Under the earth, they're one. The Arizal instituted before davening every morning, you should say, And I want to suggest, I think this is a great time during the corona, to do what the Arizal suggested. Whatever you daven, you daven Nusach Ashkenaz, Svar, Teiman, Yadus, Hamizrach, whatever you daven. Before we start davening, this is a special tradition of the Arizal, that you say, I'm accepting upon myself the mitzvah to love my neighbor to love my fellow Jew like I love me. This Dariza, one of the greatest mystics in Jewish history, 16th century, says you should say before David. Why? So one of the great masters explained as follows. Listen to this. What is the greatest source of aggravation for parents? And what is the greatest source of nachas for parents? We all know that when parents see that their children are fighting with each other, especially when they're older, and they're not talking to each other, and they're killing each other, and they're schlepping each other to court, and they can't come to each other's simchas, it kills a mother and it kills a father. It kills them. I'm not talking about if they're abusive and dysfunctional and healthy and they're guilty for it. I'm talking about fine parents. Nobody's perfect. But I'm talking about parents who are, you know, more or less they're normal human beings trying to do the right thing, even if they made mistakes. It kills them. What's the greatest nachas for parents? When they see that all their children get along and care for each other and are here for each other and call each other and, and have a heart for each other and help each other. There's no joy that a father and a mother have when they see that their children get along and really are there for each other, even if they don't always agree with each other. But that the family is united. So therefore, that Rizal said, we go to Davin to Hashem. I want to go to my father and ask him for things. I'm going to Davin. I want this, I want this, I want this. Before that, tell Hashem, I love all of my siblings. I love all your kinlech. Ah, you know what happens? God smiles. Hashem, so to speak, opens up. There's so much divine pleasure. There's so much nachas. Now you can accomplish whatever you want to accomplish. When Tati is so happy, there's so much nachas ruach. The tainug ha'elyon, the divine pleasure, is expanded infinitely. Why? 
because he sees that his siblings get along. So before we start davening, I have to ask myself, what's my relationship with my siblings, with God's children? Imagine somebody comes over to me or somebody comes over to you and says, you know, I love you. I love you. I love you. Here, give me a hug. Pre-corona, after corona, virtual hug. I love you, but I hate your kids. I hate them. They're obnoxious. They're rude. They make me sick. I don't want to see them. I don't want to visit them. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Though you, I love. What is that going to make you feel like? It'll make you feel horrible. You don't want to have a relationship with such a person. So now let's think about it. I come to shul or my home and I say every single morning and every single evening, Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And I tell God, I love you, I love you. Your children, I hate their guts. <laughs> this one is uh, despicable, this one I can't stand, this one is petty, this one is a thief, this one is a thug, this one is an addict, this one is codependent, this one is dysfunctional, this one is an abuser, this one is unhealthy, this one is a ganav, a chakran, a ritzeach, an idiot, a ferd, a behemah, a And these are just uh, the nicer Yiddish adjectives that we have for some people. I'm not going to get more detailed than this. You can ask your grandmother for the best Polish and Russian curses. What does it feel like, Tashem? You love me, but my children you despise. It doesn't work. There's something off. The Balatanya once said, they asked him, what's a greater mitzvah? Avas Hashem or Avas Yisrael? Loving God or loving a Jew? What's a greater mitzvah? You know what he said? He said, Avas Yisrael is a pirush of Avas Hashem. You know, they called him a litvak. So here's a good, here's a Chabad litvak answer. Okay? <laughs> the Alter Rebbe said, the Balatanya said, Avas Yisrael is a pirush of Avas Hashem. The love of a Jew is a commentary on the love of God. Oyev masha ov oyev. You love what your beloved loves. In other words, what does it mean to love God? You want comment? You know what it means to love God? You know, what's commentary? You have Chumash, you have Rashi. What's the commentary on loving God? You want to love God? Love a Jew. That's love God. Every Jew is, is, is Hashem's love. If I love you, I love what you love. Even if I'm having some issues, but if I love you enough, I respect, I cherish that which means the world to you. If you know that something means the world to your wife or to your husband, even if you personally don't have a relationship with it, but that in itself is enough to say, you know what? I have space in my day, in my heart, in my soul for you. So Avas Yisrael is a pirush. It's a commentary for Avas Hashem. Every Jew is a piece of Hashem. To love a Jew really means to love God, to love the imprint of God that exists in every heart, in every human being. Every human being is carved in the image of God. The Hashem of a Jew is called a chelik eleikam imal mamash. Literally, a piece of Hashem, a piece of, a piece of infinity. I was not long ago, at a Shabbos I met, a special Jew, he lives in Brooklyn, his name is Reb Shmuel Duvet Friedman. He's a very big Talmud Chacham. He wrote many Svarim on Shas. I think they're called Zdeit Soifim, wonderful commentaries on Shas. So he shared with me a story, uh, of an insight. He heard this from a Jew named Reb Duvet Shia Myers. Reb Shia Myers was a Satmer Chosset. He was a Satmer Chosset. A Hasidic Jew from the Satmer group. 
And today, the 21st day of Kislev is a very big celebration because it's the Yom HaTzolah, the day of salvation of the Satmerav, Rav, the Divri Yoel, Rabbeinu Yoel, Teitelbam, Schuse Yagen Aleinu. So Rabshia Dovid Myers, he was a Rosh Hashiva, he was a Satmer Rosh Hashiva in a Litvish Yeshiva in Stamford, Stamford, Connecticut. So he once asked a question, this is Jewish trivia. I love the question, I love the answer. He says, I want you to tell me a scenario that you have a thought, one thought, and with that thought, you perform 16 million mitzvahs. One thought comes into your mind. You arouse one thought within your brain, and right at that moment you performed 16 million mitzvahs. There's only one such thought. And the answer is, When I have a real thought that I love every Jew, what did I just do? I just performed 16 million mitzvahs. Ah! It's a of art. A thought. That's maybe what the Rambam also means when he says one thought can change the world. One thought can spread love to 14 million people, 15 million, I said 16, I don't know if it's 14 or 15 or 16, but 14 million mitzvahs is is also good. That's the power of connection. That's the power of fusion. Rabbi Soloveitchik, Rabbi Yosheb Ber Soloveitchik, Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik, Zechet Tzadik Levracha, once said something so beautiful. He said, Toysvah says in Menachah, it's a story, Gemara speaks about a man who has two heads in terms of tefillin. And Toysvah says a story about a man who had two heads. His father died and he demanded a double portion of the inheritance because he had two heads, so he's like two people. And they came to King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech. And Shlomo said, you know what we do? We blindfold one of the faces of this man. We pour hot water, semi-hot water on the other head. If the first one screams, we know he's one person and he doesn't get a double portion of the inheritance. If the other head doesn't scream because it doesn't feel the pain, then we know there are two distinct living organisms two brains, and therefore he gets a double portion of the inheritance as though he would be two people. That's the story that Toysfus brings him in Nachas, I think it's page 37 somewhere, in that zip code. So Rabbi Soloveitchik, Rabbi Yashavitch said, what's the meaning of this story? Can anybody explain this to me? And he said a marvelous insight. He said, you know, the Jewish people don't have one head. We have many, many heads Right? We have so many different opinions. Two Jews, 19 opinions. I say one thing and you have an opposite opinion. Even one Jew within himself doesn't have, doesn't have one opinion. I once heard from Rabbi Sachs that he was having a debate with, I think it was Amos Oz. Amos Oz, one of the most left-wing literary geniuses in Israel. And he was having a conversation, a dialogue, a debate. So before they start, Amos O says, Chief Rabbi Sachs, I just want to say, as a premise, I will probably disagree with most things that you're going to say tonight. Don't take it personal. But you should also know that I usually disagree with most things that I say. Classic, right? We have a lot of heads. We don't have one head. 
Every Jew has his own perspective, her own opinion, her own Weltanschauung. Ezer Kenegdoi, like the Nitziv says. That's not a problem, said Rabbi Soloveitchik. The fact that there are multiple heads is not an issue. As long as when you pour scalding water on one, the other one screams. The problem is, not that there's two heads, that when you pour hot water on one head, the other one doesn't feel it. He says, that's the problem. I don't care that we disagree with each other. I don't care that we have multiple heads. We have multiple ways of viewing reality. We have multiple perspectives. We have multiple Weltanschauung and we have multiple Ashkafos. We have disagreements and some disagreements may be about serious issues. But when they're pouring water on one head, the other head has to be able to feel the water because it's one person. If the other head doesn't feel the hot water, now it's bitter, now it's bitter, now you know it's not one person anymore. And thus is Nishgut. If it's not one person anymore, if that unity, if that integration is lacking, then we have a serious challenge. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's easy to cut you off from my life. We're not on speaking terms anymore. That's a tragic mistake. Maybe there are, there are not maybe, there are some exceptions. But be very, very cautious. Make sure that that decision... Is not being made because of weakness and anger. It's coming from a place of strength. You're consulting with a person who's responsible, who cares, who's objective, before you cut somebody out of your life. Yes, if somebody is abusive, somebody is a danger to your life, if somebody is a control freak and they're not allowing you to breathe, if somebody has hurt you very badly, especially in an intimate way, you may have to protect yourself. But generally speaking... When we operate from a place of strength, we don't cut people out of our lives. We learn how to appreciate, respect, create healthy boundaries, but don't cut people out of your life. If there's somebody you're not speaking to, change, surprise yourself, reach out to them, say I'm sorry, apologize, even if you're right and they're wrong. Don't allow pettiness to take over. Rabbi Lau had the right to read the Torah at his Bar Mitzvah. But he knew his confidence wasn't dependent on that. Even though everybody came to hear him. This old Jew, this was all he had. He didn't have anything else. It's a demonstration of strength. Now, maybe the Gaboyim should have done something different. I don't know. I'm not here to judge anybody. But the point is, it's such, an, it's such a display of what it means to live a larger life. Finally, last January, the world commemorated the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau, which happened on January 27th, 1945. So January 2020 was the 75th year since the liberation of that death camp. 46 world leaders came to the Jerusalem Museum, Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, to commemorate the date, to discuss it, and to make a commitment for the future. You had there presidents, kings, princesses, vice presidents, prime ministers, and leaders, men and women, some of the most powerful people in the world, including the leaders of the Allies, the countries that defeated Nazi Germany 
1945. Who would speak as the representative of the Holocaust survivors? It's the person I mentioned earlier who survived Buchenwald, Rabbi Israel Meir Lau. It was really a moving scene to watch this rabbi with a hat, payas, a beard, addressing very powerful people in Jerusalem, in Yad Vashem, 46 of the world leaders and many others who came, other dignitaries or people of prominence and leadership positions. And he spoke to them about the torture, about the starvation, about the suffering, about the abuse, about the murder, about the dead bodies, about his own parents, whom he never saw after the SS took them and his mother pushed him into another line with his brother, which saved his life, even as he was screaming, Mame, 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 and could not understand why his mother would reject him. It took him a long time to understand that as she rejected him, she gave him a lease on life. But then he turned to all the leaders and he concluded his words with this message. He said, I want to ask you a question. In the book of Genesis, there's a flood. Noah takes into the ark every single living mammal, two of every species, and insects, and birds, and reptiles, all living all living animals. And they're there for a year. And I want to ask you a question. How did the lioness live peacefully with the antelope? How did the cheetah live peacefully with the deer? How did the tiger live peacefully with the monkey? How did the snake live calmly and serenely, with its prey. It says we don't even have one recorded scene in the Torah of any violence in the ark. What happened? How did they all manage to behave, as your grandmother would say, like tatalach, so nicely? Interesting question. And he looked at them and he said, I'll tell you the answer. The animals were not dumb. They knew that if Noah throws them out of the ark, they will all be consumed in a raging flood. They understood that if they do not learn how to live peacefully with each other inside this ark, you know what will happen? They will all have to leave and they will all be liquidated and obliterated. So they understood they better learn how to behave in that ark. He looked at these 46 leaders and he said, can't we learn from the animals? What the animals understood, we can't understand. There's a flood raging. Humanity is threatened by so many things. He said, first thing is a disease. Of course, a few months later, we would know what that means. We are threatened. We have so many common enemies. There are floods raging outside. Can't we learn to really get along, because if we don't, we will all end up drowning in this flood. He said, with one signature of your finger, of your hand, you can decide for peace, for love, for connection, for life, 
That's what I'm asking you to do. They gave him a thundering standing ovation that was amazing. But I, my dear friends, paraphrase the words of the chief rabbi and say to you and to me and to us, we can't afford any longer to be divisive. (laughs) There are too many floods out there. There are too many unknowns. There are too many people who dislike us. There are too many challenges from within and without. We really cannot afford for each of us to machen Shabbos by zich, to go eat cholent in our own cocoon and not allow anybody else into our tent. This is the time for us to be able to create the most powerful and unified communities because even if we don't agree with each other, we mustn't agree with each other. But we must always love each other and be here for each other for eternity. Thank you very, very much. You can unmute yourself. If anybody wants to speak, you can unmute yourself. Thank you very much, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you, everybody who participated, who joined tonight. Uh, These are important lessons that I can be speaking for myself. I hope to be able to look back a year from now and say that last year, Rabbi Jacobson gave us food for thought. And I'm hoping that we'll look back, all of us will look back and realize how much better people we became from it. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the special evening in tribute to your special daughter of blessed memory. May she be a good to better and a source of inspiration and blessing for her mother and her father and the whole family and all the friends and relatives and the whole community and all the Jewish people in the whole world. And may all of you be blessed with nachas and health and happiness and prosperity and chazak. Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson. This is Agnes Kafler uh, Jacobovitz. I'm a old, old friend, good friend of Toby Vider Schwartz, a childhood friend of mine, and she's like my sister's soul. And I just want to wish both Feige and Mark and the whole family peace and uh, peace and uh, respect and the shoma for the for Sari and my my dear sister Toby who is my life sister although she's a soul sister not a blood sister but we've been together for many many years coming out from 1964 from Romania and we share together a lot of life together and I hope to have peace and safe and health for all of them. Shalom. Amen, amen. Thank you, amen. Uh, whoever is eating, whatever it looks like you're eating good sushi, you could pass some here to the speaker. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ra- Rabbi Y.Y. Uh, Jacobson. Your speech was absolutely moving. I was sitting here for an hour and a half, whatever time it was. And it's so powerful and so meaningful. Thank you. Thank you. And Bishut Sari, uh, I was one of the people who read the book. And uh, and she was the conduit to bring you here and to bring this inspiration to us. May her neshama have an aliyah b'shemayim. Amen. 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 The neshama has an aliyah. May all of us be elevated as part of that aliyah. And I should say, we're also hoping Mashiach comes very soon, so the Neshama will also have a Yerida. The Neshama will come down. Which will be the greatest Aliyah. Sometimes coming, going down is the greatest way of going up.
Can you hear me? I'm Tamara. We hear you, Tamar. We hear you loud and clear. Oh, well, the rabbi did give me a bracha to tune into people. I did it three years on Discovery Cruise Line in Florida. That was what I did. And the rabbi gave me a bracha in 1992. 90, 1990. Yeah. Anyway, um, with the roots of the trees spreading out 100 feet like that, and we're intertwined, I see we're one. But if we're intertwined by spreading out, is it the same? Could the next tree come of two different trees? Because the roots intertwine, but they don't intersect, you know, like inside the root. Excellent. The roots intertwine, but they don't intercept because even as we become interlocked, we retain a certain distinctiveness. And it's extremely important. Unity doesn't mean that we all become the same. Equal, but different. Every person has their distinct contribution, their distinct personality, their distinct soul, their distinct light. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. The pieces are not identical, they're different. But together, they create a mosaic. It's like the limbs in a body. Every limb has its own contribution, but together it creates the magic of life. It's like notes in a symphony. It's like musicians playing together in an orchestra. Everyone has their own instrument, but together they generate this beautiful music. And the same is true when it comes to the Jewish people. Hillel says in the ethics, if I am not for myself, who will be here for me? But if I am only for myself, then what am I? The sequoia on its own can't survive. You have to fuse, you have to be connected. That's why it's so, connection is so important. You know, the, 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 the wise the addiction therapists say, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Right? That's why your grandmother, who broke her hip, goes to the hospital, they give her morphine for four weeks, and she doesn't become addicted to heroin. Why not? Why not? The answer is, because the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Because she comes home to a loving family. There's people she's connected to. And therefore, she doesn't want those substances. That's why connection is so important. Connection. Connection between parents and children. Connection between siblings. Connection of communities. The first time it says in Torah, not good. What's the first thing in Torah that's not good, you know? What would you expect? would be the first thing the Torah says is not good. You would think, idolatry, denying God, that's not the first thing that's not good. You know what's the first thing? Low tov. Hey, Low tov, hey, Let's. I want you to say that verse again, but correctly. You, you, one word. Low tov, hey, Low tov, hey, Ha-adam levadam. It's not good for Adam to be alone. Aloneness is what breeds addiction. Aloneness breeds isolation. Aloneness breeds depression. Connection is critical. And at a very young age, today they say one of the worst disorders is attachment disorder. People don't have attachment. They don't feel attached. They didn't feel attached to their mother, didn't feel attached to their father, didn't feel attached to their community. 
and they go into isolation, and it's a very difficult world, and then you need things to numb your pain. So connection is so important, emotional connection. And that's the idea of the sequoias. They know that. They, they interlock. They are connected. They're not the same. They'll argue with each other, but they're going to be there. The problem is not arguing. The problem is when we drift away like this. When we can talk, even when we're disagreeing, it's fine. I'll tell you a very interesting marriage statistic, okay? Listen to this statistic. I believe, I've read or heard, 70% of arguments that couples have in the beginning of their marriage, they will still have those arguments 50 years later. That means, that means if you get married at 20, and you're having an argument with your husband who's 25, right? When both of you are 100 years old, which means approximately 75 years later, you will still have the same arguments. Window open? No. Window closed. Lights open? No. Lights closed. It's too hot? No. It's too cold. (laughs) We go to this restaurant? No, it's a horrible place. We put uh, lemon in the food? No, no lemon. Uh, You'll still have exactly the same arguments. But that doesn't make or break a marriage. The most loving marriages have the same arguments like the marriages that are not good. You know what the difference is? The difference is not if there's an argument or not. The difference is how do they deal with the argument. In good marriages, you continue to argue. But you continue to argue. You talk. You talk and you respect the fact that somebody has another opinion and you make space for it, even though it's not your opinion. In a bad marriage, you stop arguing. Instead, you turn away. You ignore each other. You stonewall each other. You run away from each other. You stop talking. You don't communicate. You don't feel connected. You feel the other person doesn't like you. You understand? So arguing is not the problem. The problem is what happens as a result when you stop talking. So the same is true with the Jewish people. We have different different people. That's fine. But don't run. Don't run away. We have to find ways of always working in unison with trust and with love and with understanding and with empathy. Yeah, it's an interesting statistic. 70, 69, 69%. Gottman, Gottman, the famous marriage therapist writes this. Dr. Gottman. He says that 69% of arguments in the beginning of a marriage will persist 60, 70 years later. I thought that's amazing. In good marriage, we're talking about good marriages. Most arguments will not be resolved because she has her way of looking at it. He has his way of looking at it. That's it. Tough luck. Live with it. You're going to start convincing a man that uh, that it's that it's too it's too cold, or the other way around. It's like convincing him that uh, kale is better than schnitzel. You think you're going to win that argument? Kale is better than schnitzel. Or are you going to tell him that green beans? A superior to sprinkle cake. Good luck. I'm just joking. I know that the men in Teaneck are very, very healthy and they understand that kale and spinach are infinitely superior to pizza and uh, sponge cake and babka. Cheesecake, I'm not going to go in. I'm not going to discuss cheesecake because that has a special place in the Jewish heart. 
we even have a holiday dedicated for it. Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much. I'm Feige's sister, and I want you to know that I got logged off of the Zoom because there was over 100 participants. So I was, ah. on, I was on another um, link, and there were 78 participants on that link. So just okay. so you know, Feige and Chesky, it sounds like close to 200 people listening live tonight. And I just wanted to share a short story about Sari. Um, she was in Paris on a Thursday morning, and on Wednesday... I had called Feige and I said, are you up for visitors? Can I come? Should I come? And Sari said to, to her mother, Auntie Ya'el can only come if she brings Bacheva. Hmm. And right here, this is my Bacheva. As much wow. as I feel like this just happened yesterday, like Kanai Nahara, she's eight, eight years old. She was six months old when this happened. And Sari, wow. Sari Mamish held her the day before. And as you were speaking, my Bacheva, who's really should be in bed, was listening to your words. And she said, Mommy, I've never heard a rabbi speak like this before. This is incredible. And she did not want to go to bed. She listened to the entire, entire show. Wow. So thank you from our family for, for everything that you've done for Sari's Neshama. And I know you also spoke at my, father, at my father's CMA Shas last year. Thank you. That your sister arranged that. Yes, I know. My sister is a fan. She is a fan. Your yes, sister arranged that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad that your sister asked me tonight for only an hour. She could have asked for four. <laughs> we to, can listen to you for four hours here in my family. Speak, sp- speak, speak, speak for yourself. <laughs> and for your sister. And for your sister. But if you could convince my mother-in-law, I'd be great, grateful. <laughs> But I thank you for your words. So her name is Batsheva? This is Batsheva, yes. yes. So how old is Batsheva? Nine, eight? She's eight, eight. Yes. Okay, wow. Batsheva, that means a lot. When adults tell me that I was good, you know, they don't always tell you the way it is. They want to know. But when children say you were good, it's real. So Batsheva, that means a lot. Thank you. I appreciate your feedback very much, Batsheva. You're going to be a light onto the Jewish people. You see, you brought your cousin. Tell Batsheva, Batsheva, you had a big mitzvah of giving your cousin, your first cousin, so much joy right before she left this world. And that's a very special thing. Because when a person ends their journey on this world, it's a very sensitive time. It's a very holy time. When the neshama goes back to Hashem. And you, and you, you didn't even know it, you were a little baby. But you made her... You made her feeling, you made her sense of, of life so much more uh, valuable and rewarding. She felt joy, like you just said, she felt so much joy. And then she left this world. So that's a very special thing you did right when you were born before knowing it. You should just remember that. That means you came into the world, right when you came into the world, you uplifted a soul that was about to leave the world. And that's an unbelievable act of, of kindness and love. Just know that. Just know what, what type of light is inside of you because these things don't go away. If you didn't understand what I said, mommy will explain when she puts you to bed. She understands, I think, but I'm going to explain later. Maybe she, maybe she understands better than uh, others, right? Okay, everybody, good night again. Thank you, Mark and Fagy. Thank you, everybody. You You guys could continue to fabring. You could continue to schmooze. (laughs)
Feel free. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.